0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, to be called a Christian, it's not a small thing. Though uh, this was a term that was used as a form of mockery the term christian when unbelievers would look at those who followed jesus and would call them little christian little christ this name over time became embraced by the followers of jesus And this term, even though it was first used in a derogatory manner, it's a term that, you know, that term of Christians or followers of Christ or little Christ, it's a term that sort of encapsulated the fact that those who are following Christ are mini Christ and are becoming more like Christ. but over the centuries since christ has come and gone this term christian has has become quite ambiguous you can have a n- number of people groups who have no honor for christ no honor for his teachings, and yet they call themselves Christians. Some of them who call themselves Christians, who are essentially cults, they might deny his humanity, that he was truly human. There are others who might not deny his humanity, but, he will, but they will deny the fact that he was truly God, that he was truly divine. Because the fact that Jesus is actually God-man, it, it is both a complicated and wonderful and glorious thing to, for the human mind to comprehend. In fact, to such people who call themselves Christians and have no regard for Christ. And still call themselves Christians and their gatherings as churches. Well, that sort of Christianity could be termed as, in the words of Michael Horton, a book that he's written, famously written called as Christless Christianity. A Christianity that has no Christ, which is really not Christianity at all. Now for believers, at least, outright wouldn't deny who Jesus is, and his person, and his work. But there is a sense in which believers can also, at times live a Christless Christianity. Where there are seasons of life where they might come to church, they hear about Christ, and then they go back home, and and that's the end of it. There is no ongoing relationship with Christ. There is no thinking about Christ. There is no intimate relationship with Christ whatsoever. And then over time they feel distant and they get into more sins and whatnot. They don't see their sin rightly and because they don't see their sin rightly they don't see their need for Jesus rightly. Because they don't see their need for Jesus rightly they don't love Him as He should and they don't trust Him as He should and they don't follow Him as He should. And then over time, Christ just seems like this distant figure. That would be functionally living a Christless Christian life. And, you know, at best, this person may have some thoughts about God, but perhaps more like a Jew, where they get some aspects of God, but there is actually no engaging with who Christ is and being intimately connected to him throughout their life, from Monday through Saturday. At worst, this person goes into more and more sin. I want to ask you this morning, how are you this morning? How are you living your Christian life? Are you living a Christless Christianity? At best, like a Jew, just thinking general terms about God? but no real relationship with Christ in an ongoing way during the week. Or worse, just almost living like a pagan. Well, whether you're a Christian or not, I pray that what we would look at this morning would encourage you to turn back and consider Christ and follow Him faithfully. Perhaps you are following him faithfully and you love him. Sure, you don't love him as he should. You don't trust him as he should be trusted. But you are continuing to move in the direction. You're continuing to move toward Christ. Praise God for you. But I want to encourage you further from God's word, as the author does, just to keep on going. Don't stop. Don't get distracted, but keep on going. Essentially, the book of Hebrews, if you were to summarize the entire book and what the author says, it would be just this. Consider Christ. Consider the glorious God-man. Understand more and more of who he is and what he has done. And as you see him for who he is and what he has done, it will cause you to follow him and to love him and to trust him. The audience of the book of Hebrews, there were Jewish Christians who were tempted to abandon Christ, abandon following Christ. Because on the one side, there were these difficulties of following Christ, the difficulties of being a Christian from the world. And then there was the attraction, the comfortableness of going back to that Jewish religion because everything would be normal and easy again. And so the author writes this book to encourage Christians to not forsake Christ. But to see Christ for who He is and to continue on, see Him for who He is and love Him and savor Him and trust Him and follow Him and don't abandon Him. This morning, the title of my sermon is just that. Consider Jesus. And we're going to look at what the author will tell us in how we are to consider Jesus, we'll look at this passage under two headings. The first point, you guessed it, is still the same thing, consider Jesus. And that we see in verse 1. And then, from verses 2 through 6, the author will then call us to consider Jesus in comparison with Moses and to see how Consider Jesus, who is greater than Moses. So consider Jesus. Verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our Confession. You know, in the previous section, just prior to this, the author has just told us that the eternal Son of God became a man. Such that f- God Himself became incarnate, fully God yet fully man. He wasn't just God with some human skin on like, like a j- jacket that I'm wearing where he, he would just put it on and off. No, he actually became fully human and yet remained fully God. And now he's saying, in light of the great salvation that is accomplished by Jesus, the God-man, Understand, therefore, as Christians, the privileged position that you have been brought into. And so he says, therefore, and he addresses the audience, and by implication even us, holy brothers, you've been made as holy brothers. Holy in the sense that you have been forgiven of your sins and you've been made righteous in God's sight because of Jesus. We saw this last week through His obedient suffering and His death on the cross. He has made you holy. He has sanctified you. Now being made holy, it doesn't mean that therefore as Christians we will be perfect and sinless in this life. But it does mean that we have been set apart from that life of sin and death. And that we have a new life now, a life that is set apart for God. So set apart from sin and death and now set apart toward God in this new life. It means that if we are are made holy, that Christians are now moving in a very different direction to that of the world. We are moving away from sin and then we are moving toward God and his purposes and where we are becoming more and more like Jesus As we reach glory. And then on top of that he he doesn't just say you've been made holy. He says we've been made part of God's family. How? Through our connection with Jesus the eternal son. We saw this again last week the eternal son, capital S son, because of our connection with him, now we who are connected to him have become small s sons of God. We have now God as our father and Jesus is our elder brother and we've been made part of God's family. We are holy brothers who have heard and believed in God's call of salvation. And therefore, as holy brothers, we share and partake of this heavenly calling. The calling is called heavenly because it comes from heaven and it is leading to heaven, back to God comes from him, from heaven, and it goes back to God. So it's a heavenly calling. And when you think even that destination to heaven, don't just think somewhere up in the sky sort of thing. In light of all that the author has been saying, think heavenly realities coming on earth, where heaven itself will be on earth. It's all part of the world that is to come that the author has been talking about. This is the calling of salvation that has come to us, and we are in the process of inheriting. Now, you can imagine these Jewish Christians. You know, many of their families, because they had become Christians, they would have been disowned as they became Christians. And many of their family members would have been ashamed to call them as even brothers and sisters. They would have even been mocked, perhaps, by some of the world around them. And because of all this, some of them are even losing sight of their Christian life and where this Christian life is heading. So that's why then the author is reminding them and us by implication understand this is who you are in jesus holy brothers you're on a totally different trajectory to that of the world you and you're being made part of god's family and you're heading now to this glorious heavenly future which is part of your inheritance And this glorious heavenly future is so unlike what you see now in the world. So implication as he calls us, the readers, holy brothers sharing in a heavenly calling. What is the implication? Don't be fearful or ashamed of your Christian life and following Jesus. Be hopeful and be joyful. Don't lose sight of who you are in Christ. Don't lose sight of where you're headed. Because if you lose sight of this, you're going to drift off course. And you'll be tempted to give up. And you'll be tempted to abandon Christ. And so, naturally, after reminding the Christians of their identity and their destiny, the author comes now to the main exhortation. Therefore, consider Christ now, holy brethren who share in this heavenly calling. Don't forget Jesus who has made this a reality and bringing this to full completion. Consider Jesus. Now the word here that's translated consider, it's the same word that's used in Acts 7.31 which speaks of Moses at the burning bush. In Acts 7.31 it says that Moses was so amazed at the sight of the burning bush, this bush that's on fire and yet not being consumed, that he drew near to look at it, to consider it even further. So it has the idea of giving serious attention to contemplate for the purpose of really understanding something. And so the author is saying, and similarly consider Christ. Give serious attention to Him. And contemplate Him to really understand Him. You know, we'll never be able to exhaust The wonder and beauty of Jesus. We'll never come to a point and say, oh, now I understand everything about who Jesus is. Now we say that about God, maybe just the divine side of things. Yeah, we can't understand God. But it is equally true about Jesus, the God-man. When you think of his humanity and all that he's done, and when you think of his divinity and the two coming together, there's so many glorious things about it that we would never exhaust it. And so we shouldn't ever come to a point and say, yeah, I get everything about Jesus, so let's just move on to something else. No, the author says we need to intentionally give our attention to him and meditate on him. So that we can understand more and more of the glories of Christ. That we can understand more and more of Jesus, the incarnate Son, the God-Man. So here's a question for you. How do you consider Jesus? How do you focus on Him more? I mean, do you just... Sit in a corner and whatever comes to your imagination and you're just thinking about that? No. See, that's why we have to be in the Word of God. Because it's the only way in which we can have a right understanding of Jesus. Being in the Word is how we see Jesus more and we understand Him more as we read the Word and meditate on His Word and ask God to open our eyes to see more of Jesus as He's been revealed in Scripture. And so the author says, consider Jesus not just some figment of your imagination, but specifically as the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession. Now these two terms are, you could say it's essentially a summary of what has been discussed in the first two chapters. The term Apostle just means sent one, as in the sense of an ambassador or God's messenger. Now, in the Old Testament, the verb form of apostle was used of prophets. Where often it would be said that the prophet was sent by God. Or you could even, you know, very literally translate that as the prophet apostled by God. And so for for Jesus to be called an apostle, in one sense, it connects with Jesus To the prophets of the Old Testament. But at the same time it also connects him to the apostles in the New Testament. Because Jesus as the apostle who was sent by God. Who was sent by God the Father into the world. Now sends his apostles into the world. So he becomes this climactic figure on the one side in the New Testament era holding hands with the apostles and in the Old Testament with the prophets. Jesus is the climactic apostle of God. The one who is in himself the final and full revelation of God. The one who is the radiance of God's glory, as we saw in Hebrews 1. And yet became a frail man to reveal God to us in a more fuller way, in a way that no one else could. Why? Because Jesus himself is God. He is God incarnate. That's why he can reveal God to us in a way no one else can. So you could say as an apostle... Jesus, the God-man, revealed God to us. But the author also says, don't just consider him as the apostle, consider Jesus also as our high priest. Now the high priest, on the other hand, did the exact opposite. Revealed man to God. Represented man to God. If the apostle represented God to man, the high priest represented man back to God. How did he do this? Well, the eternal son became a man. He became a man to be our high priest and our representative. And as a man, he offered the perfect sacrifice of himself before God. For our sins. The eternal son of God. He took on flesh. So he could suffer and die on our behalf. And satisfy God's wrath. So that we could be forgiven of our sins. A man had to do that. Because that was the function of a high priest. A high priest had to be a man. A high priest represented man back to God. And along with the sacrifice that he offered, and he was faithful in all that, as our high priest, he has sanctified us and made us holy. That was also the job of a priest. And as our high priest, he now intercedes for us before God. So in all these ways, you can see a man now in the presence of God the Father, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, who has functioned. As a high priest and continues to function this way, representing man to God. So, why is the author saying consider Jesus this way? The apostle and the high priest because on the one side when you think of Jesus as the apostle you can have great confidence that you have heard from God because as the apostle as the one sent from the father he is God himself who reveals God completely and utterly and finally and fully and then as a result he had we can be sure of his revelation Of what he's revealed to us about God. And then as high priest. He has reconciled us back to God. He has offered himself. As the perfect sacrifice. God became man. To be the perfect sacrifice. So that man could come before God. So in the words of one commentator, consider Jesus, God's apostle, the final word from God, and then consider Jesus, God's high priest, the final way to God. Why is the author insisting on this? See because when trials come our way when difficulties come our way when sin and temptation come our way it is precisely because we are not considering Jesus that we are going off track because when we Understand, He has revealed God to me. He has, this is God who's come near to me in the flesh. He's the perfect sacrifice and has forgiven me of all my sin and guarantees where I'm going as a result. That's not going to phase then anything that this world throws at us. We'll have great confidence in His testimony and we'll have great hope of this is where I'm going because Jesus is my great apostle and Jesus is my great high priest. Consider Jesus. Because Jesus is our only hope. He's our everything, our life, our our everything. Now at this point some of the Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism would be tempted to say oh hang on a second, you're saying Jesus is your only life and hope? No, I could tell you one other person. We can go back to Moses. See because Moses was the central figure in Judaism. In Jewish thinking Much of their thinking about God and His ways and things connected to that way of life invariably would be connected to Moses. When you think about it, God used Moses to deliver His people from slavery in the whole Exodus event. So He was seen as the great deliverer of God's people. Then Moses had a great prophetic role. Unlike other prophets, God spoke to Moses face to face. Listen to what God says about Moses in Numbers 12 and verse 8. God says, with him, that is with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. In other words, not in visions, not in dreams, not in riddles, but God speaks to Moses directly. And here's Moses who was uniquely privileged to see God's glory as well. Moses was foundational in bringing God's revelation to the people of Israel. You think of the laws, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, essentially the whole way of life in how to live rightly before God. That whole Jewish religion all came through this man, Moses, as God spoke through him. So it's natural for someone from a Jewish background to be tempted to say, Oh, there's a great figure that I know of as well, that God himself has put a stamp of approval, and that's Moses. And they would be saying, besides, you know, life would be so much easier just going back to Moses instead of following this Jesus, this this person who's come recently. So what's the issue if I go back to Moses? Moses. So then the author says, okay, let's talk about Moses and Jesus then. What he's going to do now is he's going to do a compare and contrast between these two figures to ultimately encourage his audience to follow Jesus and not Moses. And this brings us to our second point. Consider Jesus greater than Moses in verses 2 through 6. So the author has just said, consider Jesus, and then verse 2, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him. I.e., who was faithful to God who appointed in His various responsibilities, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now what the author is saying is that both Jesus and Moses were appointed by God for certain responsibilities. And they were both faithful in their task. Now let's just think for a moment of the faithfulness of these two figures. Start with Moses. It's God himself who commissioned Moses to to reveal who God is to Pharaoh and the people. And even then lead the people out of slavery from Egypt. And listen to that when God commissions him in Exodus three verse 10. Here Moses is described as one sent by God to Pharaoh. Moses is one apostled by God to go to Pharaoh. He was, Moses was God's messenger, God's prophet sent by God. And he was faithful to do all that God sent him to do and he delivered the people from Egypt. Just like god required of him he was faithful to lead the people through the red sea you know putting a staff and parting the red sea and following the lord's instruction in that and he was faithful to lead the people through that he even performed some of the priestly functions of you know like sprinkling the blood on the people when that whole all covenant was being established. When that Mosaic covenant was being established, Moses does that in Exodus 24. He was faithful to speak God's word. And then when you think of the many years of wanderings in the wilderness, Moses was faithful to lead the people as God's messenger, even when the people were often difficult to deal with. Grumbling and opposing him and going this way and that way. In fact, when the people sinned, Moses was so faithful that he would intercede for them before God. Now, Moses wasn't perfect. He had his failures. But he was a man, when you follow his life, marked by faithfulness to God for many, many, many years, despite all the difficulties and the pressures that he faced around him, even from the people that he was leading. So faithful was Moses in his prophetic role and priestly role and in leading the people that God himself declares Moses to be faithful in Numbers 12 verse 7. I mean, if God says, that's a faithful servant of mine, there's no other greater approval, right? And just as Moses was faithful, Jesus was also faithful. But you could say, Jesus was perfectly faithful to God. Even as a boy, when his parents lost him at the temple, you remember, as a boy, Jesus says to Joseph and Mary, I must be about my father's business. To the minutest detail, Jesus was faithful to all that God the Father had appointed him for, even to the point of death on the cross. He never wavered, he never failed, And when all the work that God the Father had given to him was completed, he cried out on the cross, It is finished. So Jesus was faithful, just as Moses was faithful. But there's a major difference between Jesus and Moses. And for that, the author says in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So Moses is not being demeaned in any way. Right? It's been said that he has been faithful But what the author says now is that Jesus deserves more glory and honor than Moses because Jesus is of a totally different category than Moses. I mean, you, you, you just think about this, right? When you think of the life of Moses. Moses saw the glory of God and for a short while his face was shining. Right? Because it reflected something of the glory of God. But Jesus, He is the eternal Son of God, who is the radiance of God's glory. We saw that in Hebrews 1. He doesn't just simply, in a small way, reflect the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the God-man, and we saw that in chapter 1. So what the author is saying here is this. Unlike Moses, Jesus is not a mere man. Jesus is God incarnate. He's God-man. He didn't cease to be God when he became man. And as God, Jesus is the creator of all things. The entire universe, as well as the house of God, which is the people of God. Because God created everything. And if Jesus is God, and God created everything, then Jesus created everything, the entire universe, including the house of God. What is the house of God? The people of God. That's the logic, the implication. God created everything. God created the house of God. Jesus created the house of God. Jesus is God. So the author is saying, while Moses served faithfully as one who was part of God's house, part of God's people, that's how Moses served God. Jesus is the one who makes the house of God. Big distinction between the two. Moses is part of the house. Jesus makes the house of God because he is God. And here's the wonderful thing, the people of God under the old covenant as well as under the new covenant, those of us who are believers in this age, ultimately they come to be people of God only because of Jesus, not through anyone else. He's the one who created the people of God in the Old Testament and he's the one who created the people of God in the New Testament and this is something that the author will finally allude to at the end of Hebrews 11. So essentially, who is Moses? He's created by Jesus. Jesus. And Moses became part of God's people only through Jesus. Jesus as the eternal son was there before Moses and he is there after Moses. He is Moses' God. He is Moses' creator. And so there's a huge distinction between the two of them. And so then with the analogies that the author is building, this is what he's saying. If the builders deserve more honor than the house, because it's the builder who built the house. So you say, wow, what a great house, but ultimately it points to the one who built the house and you give honor to that person. And if the builders deserve more honor than the house itself, then how much more honor should be given to Jesus who created everything, including the people of God, including this great Moses? Yes, Moses, give honor to him, but give far greater honor, far greater glory to Jesus because he is God incarnate. There's a big difference between the two. And so in this sense, he says Jesus is greater than Moses, but then he wants to add one more point to just really solidify it to encourage the people to follow Jesus and not Moses. And so he says, Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So it says, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Now, this is taken from Numbers chapter 12. What happens in Numbers 12? They're Aaron and Miriam, siblings of Moses. They're opposed to Moses for marrying a Cushite woman. And they're opposed now to his leadership. And they say things like, Does God speak only through Moses? Does God not speak through anyone else? And so they're opposed to Moses' leadership and his authority over Israel, and they want to get rid of him. And so then God appears. And clarify some things about Moses to Aaron and Miriam. And this is what God says in Numbers 12, verses 6 through 9. God says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. That's what's quoted here with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. So God is saying Moses is my faithful servant whom I speak to directly and if you don't listen to my faithful servant who I speak to directly, there is going to be consequences. And so immediately, do you know what happens to Miriam after this episode? She gets leprosy, that's right. And do you know what happens when people got leprosy in Israel during those days? They were kicked out of the camp of Israel. So God is essentially saying, if you don't listen to Moses, my messenger, who I speak to directly, then you're in danger of being kicked out. So that's the context in which, understand the context in which he's saying, Moses was a faithful servant in all of God's house. But then he also says that Moses' faithful role served as a faithful testimony of things that would be spoken in the future. In other words, Moses' testimony was forward-looking. It was pointing to things that were to come. It was pointing to a greater revelation that was to come. Well, you just have to think of the entire Mosaic system, right? The sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and the various rituals all around it. It all served as a testimony to the pattern of salvation that would be fulfilled by the Messiah. In other words, Moses and his ministry was always pointing away from Moses, pointing to something in the future. He would never pointed to himself. The revelation from Moses was never an end itself. It was just a shadow pointing to the substance of the Messiah and his work in the future. In fact, even the person of Moses, Moses himself says this in Deuteronomy 18.15, And this was quoted in our New Testament reading, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, there was this expectation of a Moses-like figure who would be the Messiah, who would lead his people to redemption, away from captivity, back to their homeland. And then when you come to the New Testament and and you compare what happened in the life of Jesus to that of Moses, there's so many parallels. To essentially say that this greater Moses is Jesus now. You think of when they were babies. Pagan kings, Pharaoh in the case of Moses and Herod in the case of Jesus. Pagan kings tried to kill them when they were babies. Then you think of Moses as a person. He left the riches and the glory of Egypt to redeem his people. And Jesus left the, the glories of heaven to come into this world to redeem his people. You think, while Moses led the people out of physical bondage and slavery, Jesus led his people out of the bondage of sin and death. Both mediated God's covenant, mediated a covenant between God and man. Moses the old covenant, Jesus the new covenant. Moses gave the people the law that was written on tablets of stone. Jesus, as a result of what he does, now the law is going to be written on the hearts of people. I mean, there's so many other similarities, but all this is pointing to the fact that Jesus now is the greater Moses, the promised Messiah to come. So while Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house always, it was always pointing to the person and work of the Messiah. And it says Jesus the Messiah, on the other hand, is faithful over God's house as a son. So there's even a contrast there. What's the problem with servants? Well, servants have limited authority and they can be easily replaced right servants but the son is over the house of God's people now and what's the difference between a servant and a son the son has full authority over the house and he's not replaceable like a servant when you just think of this practically too right so somebody who works in a house who's perhaps a servant they mess up they're kicked out and you get another servant now the son of the house if they mess up they don't stop becoming a son they will forever be a son You can't replace the son. Even if, say, somebody wants to do that, you can't. They they will always be the son. It's a permanent thing. A servant is temporary and can be replaced. A servant has temporary authority, but the son of the house has full reign over the house compared to the servant of the house. So here's the thing, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus can be assured because of our relationship with the eternal son, we have now been made part of the family of God, of the house of God. That's a guarantee. We should be assured of that. We should be assured of his authority and the fact that he secures us as a result. He will not be replaced. In fact, he's the God-man who came and died for us, made us sons and daughters of God, and then he rose up from the dead, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. So we can be secured in the house of God because it is the son that we give allegiance to, and it is the son that has final authority as to who stays in the house and who doesn't. And for all who trust in Jesus can be assured they are part of the house. But then the author then ends this section by saying, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now we read the first time, maybe the second time To it might seem like a scary verse. It might almost seem like Hang on a second, so we're his house, but there's a condition for us to be in his house. It's only if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What is that confidence? Confidence in who Jesus is, the God-man, our apostle and our high priest. And boast in the hope that is coming where we're headed. It's only if we hold fast to that, it says that we are his house. So what is the author saying? Is this work salvation again? That we have to do these things in order to be part of the house? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, if you do this, then you will be part of the house. No, what he says is, we are his house, present reality. But in tandem with that, he says, there's an other reality that goes forward as well. So what is this if meaning? well I'll just give you another verse John 8 31 Jesus says if you abide in my word you are my disciples what does that mean? if you abide in my word you prove that you are my disciples it's not saying you obey and therefore you will become my disciples it is saying that You prove that you are my disciples if you abide in my word. Because this is what is characteristic of a disciple of Jesus. So similarly, that's what the author is saying. We are his house. And what should characterize us is that we hold on to our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that are boasting hope, this glorious future that awaits us with Jesus. We're holding on to that as well. That is what characterizes those who are part of the house of God. So this should serve as, on one sense, encouragement for those of us who are believers to say, just keep on going. Yes there's difficulties, there's trials, there's temptations but just keep on going because of your connection to him because of who Jesus is the apostle who has revealed God and everything about God Jesus the high priest who has died on your behalf God himself has paid that perfect sacrifice by becoming a man and then on top of that to know that Jesus now is a son he continues to serve as the son and not as a servant So what that means is that we are totally secure in him and that we should live as people who belong to Jesus and who are part of his house. See, when you think of Moses or any other human being, no matter how great they are, they could never reveal God the way Jesus did because they're not God. They could never die for our sin. They could never complete that task of Jesus, the God-man, and therefore couldn't reign over God's house as the Son. Only Jesus, the eternal Son, become incarnate, could do that. And to think that He's the one who's died for you, and He's the one who's now encouraging you, through the words of Scripture, to continue to follow Him. So for those of us who are Christians, here's my encouragement to you. You are securely fastened to Jesus. He is yours forever, and we are his forever. And in light of that, no matter what comes our way, let's be faithful to keep considering Jesus, paying attention to who he is, and faithfully follow him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that if you did not come down in the form, the second person of who you are as a man, there's so much about you we wouldn't understand and even beyond that, we, there are still things that we don't understand but we understand enough to know who you are and to know your ways and to know how we can be made right with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he now rules over the house of God as the son and we are eternally secure in him. Help us as a result have confidence in him. Help us as a result to have a certain hope as we live in this world. May we never be tempted by the allurements of this world or the difficulties of this world but help us to be steadfast in following christ even as we know that we are secure in him we thank you lord we thank you for jesus all for his glory's sake amen